America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Anti-Semitism in the streets, missiles flying in the Red Sea, and the need to restore balance to the discussion around Hamas's campaign of rape, torture, and abuse. We'll discuss all that and more on this episode of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today. In his absence, we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook and Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Babbel, Made In, and The Breakfast Podcast. More on them later on. If for some reason you are not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So we witnessed another disturbing weekend of menacing and occasionally violent episodes of anti-Semitism in American streets. In New York City, three attackers beat a man and his 15-year-old son on the New York City subway system. They later went on to attack somebody else entirely. The only link between these uh, three victims is that they looked visibly Jewish. Elsewhere in Brooklyn, there was a campaign to shut down the Williamsburg Bridge in a march that featured such charming slogans as Adolf Hitler destroyed y'all. And in a slightly more viral episode in Philadelphia, demonstrators targeted a Jewish-owned business, uh, Goldie's Falafel, calling out the older the owner by name. Goldie, Goldie, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide, they chanted. Uh, that last one caught lawmakers' attention. So we've seen a spate of denunciations from Democratic lawmakers up to and including the White House. But Jim, not from the president himself. Mm. You noted that Biden's uh, efforts to kind of remain on the sidelines here are becoming pretty conspicuous. Well, Noah, by the way, like, um, yeah, at 10.15, yes, as we're recording this on Tuesday morning, uh, this occurred on Sunday night. I write the morning jolt uh, and was wrapping it up around 8.30, and there was no statement from the White House, nothing on Biden's Twitter feed, nothing on the First Lady's Twitter feed, nothing on the official White House one, nothing on POTUS. um, And I was like, well, you know, It's not just that there was this angry mob outside a Jewish business accusing the proprietors of genocide. You know, it's not just, you know, like, you know, the the, the owner is Israeli born, but it's an American citizen. That person is as American as you or me or anybody else. But no, no, no. This crowd decided they're not mad at Hamas. They're not mad at anybody else. They're mad at this guy for making falafel. Um, 
And as of 8.30, when I was sending off the jolt, there was no statement from the White House. Now, we, we know Joe Biden thinks of Philadelphia as kind of his second home city. Uh, next week, he'll make his ninth visit of the year to Philadelphia. When you're an 81-year-old man, just going up a little bit uh, up the East Coast, it's a fairly easy trip. Uh, Jill Biden, the first lady, is you know openly a Philly girl. She talks about you know cheering for the Eagles and Phillies and stuff like that. I mean, this is their you know this is their backyard, and so I you know, Biden uh, had his you know vice presidential center, which was based in Washington, with the University of Pennsylvania, and we'd seen people you know students going through the University of Pennsylvania campus chanting for Intifada. So I was like, well, Mister you know Mister President, where are you? Well, at ten fifteen, we got a statement, which was perfectly appropriate from the deputy White House press secretary. Nothing on camera, nothing from the first lady, nothing from Vice President Harris or the second gentleman. And it just, <coughs> it wasn't wrong, but it, it it just felt very check the box. It felt very pro forma. Okay, I guess we got to acknowledge this. This is bad. Um, and I saw Axios put out this headline, Biden denounces. Well, Am I crazy for thinking that a, you know, a headline Biden denounces would have a statement from the president? No, like even even a written issued statement from the president. No, no, it's from Andrew Bates. Good for Andrew Bates. I, you know, and he said the president stands against anti-Semitism and, and good. Like there's nothing wrong with that statement, but it would just felt like really weak tea considering how we've got people in this country who think it's okay to demonstrate their opposition to the actions of the Israeli government by picking anybody who was born in Israel and saying, you're guilty of genocide. But wait, it gets worse, Noah, because today, Morning Jolt just went up. This is organized by the Philly-Palestine Coalition. One of the reasons they're organizing this boycott of these Jewish-owned restaurants is because one of the owners, uh, they says, raising money for the Zionist state. Now, what this, this owner, Yehuda Sichel? Sichel? I'm probably going to get that wrong. But anyway... Um, he held a fundraiser for the southern Israeli town of, you're going to have to help me on this, Noah, Sidro? S-T-E-R. Thank you. Sirot? what Noah said. Direct target of the October 7th attacks, they raised $3,000 to pay for children's therapy. That's what has this crowd angry. That's what they say is supporting the Zionist state. Now, as I say in today's morning, call, these people are psychopaths. If you are getting upset about some kid getting therapy because they've just gone through hell, you've decided those kids are your enemy. What the bleep is wrong with you? You want to grab these people and shake you and say, how can you find those kids to be the problem? The world's got a hell of a lot of problems. There's a whole bunch of suffering people in this world. You could do a lot of good, but you've decided that a restaurant raising money for kids therapy is what you want to stand against. What the hell is wrong with these people? Anyway, so as you can tell, this really got stuck under my on my craw, I, I real under my skin, and I'm really mad about this. And I cannot like I, I, I it, we're recording this on video, and I, no doubt this is the one they're going to want to post because it's Jim flips out and his eyes are bulging and he looks like a maniac. Um, I, I don't understand why people are not outraged by this. I do not understand why this doesn't like say to people, holy crap, this is what they were doing in 1930s Germany. And I think because everybody's so embarrassed that this happened in the United States of America in the year 2023, that a whole lot of people want to avert their eyes from it and pretend it didn't happen. And we're all just going to move on. But the thing is, if there isn't enough pushback to this, it's going to happen again. And it's going to happen again worse next time. I can give you a few reasons if you want, Jim. Sorry to preempt now. Have you had a different question for me? Not at all. I can give you a few reasons why people aren't flipping out over this. 
The first one is that it's not being done right right wingers. If the people involved in this were the same people who staged that terrible rally in Charlottesville, of course there would be outrage. We'd be back to the summer of 2020. You wouldn't be able to log into a website without seeing we stand against right-wing hate. Second reason is that a lot of the people who are doing this are non-white cis males, and they're therefore in a privileged position in the progressive hierarchy of victims. And the third reason is that this is not great for President Biden, which is why he's now talking out of both sides of his mouth, why he has asked Kamala Harris to play bad cop, why he is engaged in what can best be described as a strategy of rhetorical ambiguity. If you believe, as the Democratic Party seems to, that Donald Trump is not only unfit for office, but is likely to instantiate a dictatorship, and that's the message we're now receiving, loud and clear, See, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and so on. Ah, we'll get there. That's I know, but I'm just foreshadowing this. If you believe that, as they have come to, not that he is deserving of all the criticisms that I've advanced over and over again, including that he should have been impeached, but that he is quite literally likely to become a dictator, then it should worry the hell out of you that there are that many people in Michigan who say they won't vote for you anymore that younger people are saying they won't vote for you anymore. I'm not saying that's moral or correct. I'm telling you why it's being tamped down by the progressive movement. You would only need three people standing outside shouting that slogan. Three, if they had the wrong politics, if they were off the far right. There was a rinky-dink, grotesque, but rinky-dink protest here in Florida recently I think there are about 12 neo-Nazis. I think they went to Disney World or near it, and they had their signs, and they were interviewed by local news. There were more journalists than protesters. And they were asked what you believe, and these people said, oh, we're white supremacists. We don't like non-white people. America's for white people. This was plastered over local news. It's 12, 12 people. But you don't get the same reaction here because the left has to be the good guys. All right, I take your first two two points, surely, but the third point seems to be breaking down some. I understand Jim's contention here that these people are psychopaths, and, and even to condemn them is to take ownership of them in some form, which Democrats are understandably reluctant to do. But we've seen a spate of condemnations, particularly of this event in Philadelphia, Governor Josh Shapiro, Senator John Fetterman, White House Communications. The, the presumption here that Democrats can just assume or pretend as though these people exist on the fringes of their coalition and are not really a part of them, even as they pander to them sotto voce, is breaking down. I don't think so. And it's, no. No, I don't think so. I think Jim's exactly right. You can tell how important a topic is to this president and to the progressive movement by how it responds to it. Having Andrew Bates 46 put out a press release is not the same thing as having Joe Biden make a primetime speech. Think about the response to Charlottesville. I don't have a problem with that. National Review wrote an editorial that was swinging and necessary and admirable. But the progressive institutional blob in this country makes it very clear when it is going through the motions and when it has dialed up it's opprobrium to 11. And it has not dialed up its opprobrium 
to 11. And the fact that you cited John Fetterman first is interesting because he seems to be the one person who has taken the tone that would be taken if this were really important on the left. He is the one guy who talks in the way that progressives talk when they're really upset about something and they will brook no opposition. The rest of them don't. Yeah, so <laughs> to your point about Charlottesville um, and Stephen Miller, who's a Twitter com- associate of ours, noted that there are essentially Charlottesvilles now every weekend all across this country, with the exception being that there's no all- violent counter-protest meeting them. They're um, unopposed. And there's a real threat to Democrats here in a political sense, insofar as one of the ways they retailed themselves in 2020 was an antidote to Trump's chaos. All this chaos in the streets, most of which was progressives being violent in response to Donald Trump. But without Trump, that would would stop, right? Well, it hasn't stopped. And everybody knows what side of the political spectrum these people are on. The White House gives sucker to them every single time they imply that Israel has run out of quote-unquote credit to pursue its righteous objectives in Gaza, or that it has been reckless in its campaign in the North and can't do so in the South in the same way. All of that lends uh, emotional support to these demonstrators. And Joe Biden has committed American prestige to Israel's war, and there is a home front, too. Democrats ran as an alternative to the chaos in the streets. They have chaos in the streets. If there's anything to, if they're going to make a an appeal to the to the American electorate next year predicated on the idea that they're an antidote to Trump's chaos, that that is becoming harder and harder to substantiate. Um, but let's move on for a second because the Democrats' conundrum may be pretty complicated, but you know what's not complicated? Learning a new language. What do you call a person who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What do you call someone who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American. Only 22% of Americans speak a language other than English at home, but you can start learning a new language now and be the exception, not the rule, because with Babbel, you will start speaking a new language in just three weeks. You can take a look at search trends. Interest in a new language is only increasing over time, and there tends to be a bit of a spike, particularly around this time of year, because it's a perfect time to pick up a new hobby, like learning a new language. And with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. Show off in time for the holidays. Why Babbel? Because it works. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools are for learning a new language, are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. Studies from Yale, Michigan University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. For instance, one study found that Babbel, using Babbel for 15 hours is the equivalent of a full semester at college. With over 10 million subscribers, Babbel is the real language learning tool for real conversations. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. You can get access to Babbel right now with a 55% deal on your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash editors. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash editors spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash editors. Rules and restrictions may apply. So we're nearly two months on from the attack on 10-7, and uh, we're still learning a lot of the grotesque details of that attack, particularly those that are emerging now as a result of uh, captives who are being released and are testifying to their treatment. And in particular, we're 
uh, finding new evidence and details of some of the allegations that were promulgated on the day of the attack and immediately thereafter, but not fully substantiated. They are now involving claims of rape, brutalization, sexual assault, sometimes sexual assault compounded by rape simultaneously, as horrible as that is to contemplate, but that is what is being alleged. Um, survivors testify that they've been brutalized, that they begged for death, that they were sexually assaulted. Some of the captives were held in cages. This is all horrible stuff. But a lot of people aren't believing them, at least among the so-called women's organizations. Um, Haley Strack at National Review has been doing human's work chronicling every international and domestic women's organization that has dropped the ball on this thing, has just refused to acknowledge what we're what is right in front of our face. And over the weekend, uh, the chair of the Progressive Caucus in the House, Pramila Jayapal, humiliated herself on CNN uh, by insisting there needs to be, quote unquote, balance in the condemnation of Hamas's rapes and abuse. Charlie, what would balance look like? Can you strike a balance between what Israel is doing in the battlefield and what Hamas did to Israeli civilians, foreign civilians, Jews, because they were Jews? What kind of balance would that even be? Or is this what we all suspect it is just a smokescreen to avoid acknowledging a really discomforting fact that these people's allies, and we have to call them allies because they're running block for them, that these people's, uh, the people for whom they have sympathy have behaved like animals. The answer is yes. I have already, I think, adumbrated the answer to the second question you asked which is that this is in an important sense about alliances and hierarchies and intersectionality and all that. I think with the first question, which alluded to a parity in the coverage, what would be called both sidesism in the domestic context, I think the reason that we have a conflict of visions here with the three of us confused and apoplectic at the way in which this is being treated and others not so is that we have not subordinated the facts that you just outlined either to some broader ideology about oppressors and settlers and so forth or to what we conceive to be the longer-term conflict. See, I think one of the differences here is that I, for example, and I think I speak for both of you, look at what happened and consider it to be fundamentally obvious who did the bad things and who did the good things. We're not talking about exchanging hostages in some mid-19th century European war, where two countries lined up in brightly colored uniforms and started fighting with one another over territory. We're talking about hostages that were taken as part of an incursion that, although different in many ways, was more akin to 9-11 than it was what you would describe as a traditional war. But what we are seeing in much of the coverage is a willingness, perhaps a need, to abstract all of that out and start talking about other things. For example, the 1948 settlement, 
or whether Israel was there 2,000 years ago, or what happened in 1973, or the occupation of Gaza that ended in 2005, but seems somehow to persist in many people's minds, or whether Gaza was an open-air prison, or whether the electricity bill got paid, or what happened in the 1980s in domestic Israeli politics, or we could go on and on and on. Now, I think that that is a shift born of necessity, cynical necessity. I think that that is the response from people who know that what happened on the 7th of October was so extraordinarily evil. And Douglas Murray is right. He got a lot of criticism for this, but extraordinarily evil in a way that in some sense surpassed what happened during the Holocaust, only in that the perpetrators were proud of it. They didn't hide it. They broadcast it. They live streamed it. I think that the only way of escaping the obvious condemnation that should flow from that is to say, well, let's zoom out. And that's where you get into both sides because the people who are doing it know that that is much more fertile ground because then they can talk about longstanding disputes and tribal hatreds and religious differences and so on and so forth. I just don't feel a need to do that because I don't think that there is any mitigating context in which behaving as Hamas did is acceptable. You cannot find me a circumstance in which that's okay. I said this on Megyn Kelly's show a few weeks ago. The country that I am originally from was very close in 1940 to being taken over by Nazi Germany. Had the Nazis invaded, they would probably have subjugated Britain and who knows, perhaps started camps or executed people summarily or what you will. The British, when faced with this existential threat, a literally existential threat, did not go into Germany, start stealing children and raping 15-year-old girls. So even if you take the most obvious moral problem or challenge, there is still no excuse for that sort of behavior. And as a result, I just don't feel any great need or sympathy for those who have said, well, I see that, but what about this? So Jim, there's seems to me to be a, a feature of this long-standing tension between a Marxian interpretation of progressivism and an identitarian interpretation of progressivism. The Marxian view, which applies a framework of capital over historical events and forces those events to comport with the idea that capital um, moves uh, is, is the primary mover of history and uh, uh, the source of most human psychology and psychological uh, intentions doesn't have any problem condemning Hamas's actions and distancing itself from them. The, ident- the identitarian version doesn't. It places them along this, as Charlie said, this hierarchy, um, the oppressor, oppressed, uh, oppressed framework in which people of a particular skin color, and, and especially uh, oppress, and uh, their targets are oppressed. And there's this um, sort of fairy tale ideal of who is the victim here and who is the perpetrator. And that's the only thing that I can see justifying the psychological gymnastics that we're seeing from progressives. But it's a rationalization and it's working backwards. So is are they all just cowards or are they really appealing yes. to a broader principle yes. here? Yes, you, 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 right. you can stop there. <laughs> um, I mean, the but, principle is corrupt, yeah. but it is a principle yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess the idea is that once you've decided that everybody in this group is the hero of the story, 
or at worst, a an oppressed victim, that they themselves have no moral agency. They are not responsible for the actions that they take. They can't make their own decisions. They are just those Palestinians. They're just violent automatons. What are you going to do? You can't expect them to do any, you know, to behave any better. Um, which, by the way, we are assured is the non-racist perspective to to see everyone as part of a group <laughs> yeah, and exactly. uh, to this dehumanizing, you know. Uh, and that Israelis, in every circumstance, are always the oppressors. They're always the bad guys. They're always the villains in the story, including the babies, including the toddlers, including the women, including the senior citizens, right? I mean, you do that because thinking's hard, because making those kinds of moral distinctions is too difficult for you. That you just, oh, my goodness, how am I, how am I supposed to tell who's right and who's wrong between a Hamas rapist and the Israeli woman he's raping. It's it's so it's it, it's messy. It's complicated. Who are we to judge? This this is the philosophy of idiots, and that is you know what we see at work here. I just want to like make it. This wasn't in your question, Noah, but I kind of feel like this is a a, a something worth putting out there. Um, in the last segment, we talked about Fetterman and, and how like he's been fantastic lately, uh, at least on certain issues. Um, he's been really, you know, like, like there are a lot of democratic senators who issued statements in support of Israel. And then there's Fetterman who went to that rally down in Washington with the Israeli flag draped around his shoulders, like Superman, right? Like, you know, we're talking about a guy, you know, wearing his heart on his sleeve. Well, anyway, he made the argument that like, now that the house has kicked out George Santos, why are they keeping Bob Menendez around for since he's every bit as corrupt? I want to point out, I mean, George Santos is a crook. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord splits you. But George Santos never went out and said, yes, rape of Israeli women is bad, but, right? Like that, that's a really morally inverted way of looking at the world. That is a really twisted way of saying, yes, sexual violence is wrong, but we have to think about the context and Israelis have done bad things too. That's like, you know, like of all the things you've heard come out of the idiots in Congress over the last couple of years, that's got to be top five worst thing you've ever heard, Right. Maybe top two or three, maybe worst ever. I don't know. Like, like that, that's that's really bad. Uh, you know, Menendez is a crook, but he never said anything like this. Trump says all kinds of outrageous things. Trump never said anything like that. You've never seen anybody go up there to say, we need to understand the broader context of sexual violence. And in any other context, like, just think about like how like people get canceled. People have their careers ended over what seems like very innocuous or mundane or you know, maybe a tasteless attempt at humor, you know, like, like stuff that, you know, maybe it's wrong, but they probably have suffered really, you know, this Congresswoman is going to suffer zero consequences for arguing rape is a morally complicated issue and we can't rush to judgment. That's what we're dealing with here. So I, I just kind of want to say like, you know, people said, ah, oh, you know, if you throw out George Santos, well, where do you draw the line? You know, soon there'll be efforts to throw out all kinds of members of Congress. Let's get started. Let's get going because I'm ready to get her out. Let's toss her out in her keister and let's keep going because there are a whole bunch of people who get away with just absolutely abominable statements and behavior because they happen to be elected in office. Well, that's the, that's the premise of the segment, the, right? The women's groups, the self-appointed inquisitors who would impose consequences have abdicated that role if they ever occupied that role. I guess that illustrates the extent to which this is, a, I wrote a piece on this for uh, national review online, a couple of, days ago, maybe a week ago, that women's groups <clears throat> aren't really about women, haven't been about women for a long time. These are left-wing organizations that adopt women's issues only when they map neatly over their already programmatic, progressive programmatic objectives. 
My favorite episode in this actually comes from a Thomson Reuters Foundation survey in 2018 at the height of the Me Too moment. Uh, they surveyed 500 some odd uh, women's experts, specialists in women's issues uh, about the countries that were worst for women. And the United States found itself on a list of the top 10 worst places on the planet Earth for women. Include It was on a list of places like Syria, Somalia, Yemen, Nigeria, Iran, places where sexual uh, violence and sexual assault is state condoned, including, quote, rape as a weapon of war. So these people could see the United States as a place where rape was used as a weapon of war, only to make a broader political point. Then they could absolutely rationalize it away wherein they see evidence of it in places where it's actually happening, if it doesn't well, comport well, with their Noah, political program. Noah, let's be honest. You said it was 2018, right? That's right. Well, Trump was president, so that almost is as bad as, you know, being whipped <laughs> in the streets by the Saudis, you know. And there so that's are the one half examples. a dozen the other. That's, you it know. Is just, that's exactly it, though. I mean, you joke. but And it is a joke because these people have made themselves jokes. But it's not a funny one um, because there are there's a real need for women's organizations who advocate for on women's rights, which are imperiled abroad and are imperiled at home. But these organizations have no interest in doing that work. And it's about time the people who uh, patronize them call them out for it. But while women's organizations, you may be wondering, while women's organizations are abdicating their professional standards, you don't have to worry about professional quality in your cookware if you're a patron of our next sponsor, Made In. If you're considering the pros and cons of different cookware brands, you should know that Made In has more pros than cons. Pros like Tom Colicchio, Nancy Silverton, Brooke Williamson, and many other professional chefs who all trust their cooking to Made In cookware. Made In has a long-standing relationship with professional chefs. The company evolved from a 100-year-old kitchen supply business that works with multi-generational makers to craft each piece. They make exactly what demanding chefs are looking for, including a wide-ranging selection of curated products from carbon steel to stainless clad, plus plateware, glassware, and more. But perhaps the biggest pro is that Made In is sold online and delivered to your door, all for a fraction of the price of other top brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, invest in made-in cookware. Once you try it, you'll be a made-in pro, too. Editors, listeners, get 10% off full-priced items from made-in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com slash editors. So, turning our attention to the Middle East, away from domestic politics... Uh, the United States naval asset, the USS Kearney, a missile destroyer, uh, engaged in what has been described as an hours-long firefight in the Red Sea after more commercial vessels came under attack from positions inside Yemen, uh, where the Iran-sponsored militia, the Houthi militia group, has been firing missiles nonstop at shipping traffic in the, uh, in the Red Sea on its way to, um, to, the, uh, to the Suez Canal. They've attempted hijackings. Uh, they're directing ballistic missiles in the direction of Israel. And all of this has been ongoing since the 10-7 attacks. It's part of a broader region-wide campaign against Israeli interests and American interests by Iranian proxies. There have been over 75 attacks on U.S. positions so far since 10-7, a lot of them producing casualties. The Biden administration has responded kinetically, meaning it's fired on some of these positions inside Iraq and Syria, occupied by Iranian proxy militias three times. But it has not restored deterrence. 
Yesterday in a press conference, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan attributed these attacks directly to Iran at long last, finally. He said he's looking into developing a multinational naval mission to protect shipping in the uh, Bab al-Mandib Strait, which is right where Somalia, the Horn of Africa, meets Yemen. It's this little uh, strait that leads to the Suez Canal. Um, but that's a redundancy. The Kearney is part of that very mission. There is already a mission to protect shipping. It is under attack. You need to respond to an attack with an attack, so we're creating a mission to protect the mission. It's not very inspiring, Jim. <laughs> um, I think we have, look, one of the reasons the Biden administration didn't react like they had completely dropped the ball and botched uh, the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan was their confidence that the American people they were upset about it at the time. They're going to forget about it. Don't worry about it. You know, the American people have a, have a short attention span. Um, we've seen these attacks. We have not seen, you know, the president. Well, actually, very early on, before the attacks started, we saw statements from the White House podium, I believe Kamala Harris. And the message was, don't. Don't do it. Don't you dare. Well, they dared. <laughs> there, there was, there, you know, no one was deterred. No one was intimidated. No one was like, oh, my God. But, Biden, Biden's pissed. We better not shoot that missile. They've been you know. saying, don't you do it. Yes. Over you the know, course of this campaign, they've been fact, doing it and doing, don't you do it. And keep fact, doing it. Yeah. Noah, the reason you haven't heard the uh, White House saying, don't do that, is because you can't hear it over the sound of all the missiles that are being <laughs> fired all the time. So um, I, was re I was reading about this and I was thinking about how in 1999, a uh, F-117 U.S. Uh, stealth fighter was shot down by the Yugoslav army as part of the U.S. intervention in the Balkans. And it was the first time a stealth fighter had ever been shot down. And I've heard different stories about this, but one of the stories I heard was that the Yugoslavs had their own intelligence network. They knew when stealth fighters were, were flying out, I believe, out of Eviano in Italy. But they basically knew generally when a stealth fighter was headed towards Yugoslavia, this is the general direction it's coming from, and this is the general area it's going to be when it comes across the border. So we're just going to fire our missiles, and we're going to hope that we happen to hit in the right time. In other words, that the Yugoslav army got really, really lucky, and that stealth fighters live up to their name, and they're very hard to shoot down, but they just happen to have a missile in the right place at the right time, shot it down. What we're seeing from the Houthis, they are not an enormously technologically advanced uh, enemy, but they do. Uh, but they're getting armed by Iran, so it's not like they're you know these aren't sticks and stones. You know. They haven't done any serious damage so far. They have to any U.S. naval vessels, but that doesn't mean you know. They just haven't gotten lucky yet. And, you know, knocking on wood, hopefully they never will. But, you know, you fire enough missiles in enough directions at a, you know, U.S. naval vessel, you know, the chances of, the chances of having a hit someday are, are, you know, greater than zero. Not not terribly likely, not terribly high, but it could happen. You could lose U.S. servicemen's lives in that. Or, God forbid, if you're close enough to shore, could somebody try some sort of uh, suicide attack like against the USS Cole or something like that? Um, people who are, are military experts can look at this and give you a better sense of what the level of risk is. But that level of risk is there. And according to the Washington Post, there are people in the Pentagon who are getting pretty PO'd about this and who basically feel like, look, our several days later, we blow up a storehouse somewhere in Syria that is loosely connected to the Iranian militia. Like None of that. That's not deterring. That, that, it's not a bad enough price. Iran is perfectly fine with losing a bunch of warehouses in exchange for firing shots at international shipping uh, in, in that region. It just just isn't enough of a price. They don't care. 
And this administration appears checkmate. Like, oh, well, we're not going to do anything else. We're not gonna, we don't want to escalate. You know, we don't, uh, you know. Now, at the very beginning of this crisis, there was this whole big, you know, bold announcement that we were sending two aircraft carriers to the Eastern Mediterranean. We were sending every signal possible. Don't you dare, Tehran. Don't you? We are, move, we are moving everything we need to into the region. We could ruin your day. Take a look at the skyline of your city. It's going to look real different if we ever decide to change it. Right? Like, you know, theoretically, we were like, ah. But now they're doing it. They've called our bluff. They're shooting every, you know, every day. 74 attacks on U.S. forces, I believe, we're up to. Maybe more than that. And uh, in terms of the Biden administration, they, there's, there's, you know, not only no, you know, these minimal pinprick style uh, attacks on targets that are only tangentially related. Um, you don't hear the president. I, I mentioned yesterday how there was only had that statement from Bates over the, the uh, Pennsylvania, over the uh, Philadelphia thing. Biden did not have any public appearances on Monday. He was at the Kennedy uh, Honors at the Kennedy Center on Sunday night. Nothing earlier in the day. Nothing on Saturday. Nothing on Friday. Thursday night, he had an event in Denver. He'll have an event at 145 today in the afternoon. So between Thursday night and 145 Tuesday afternoon, there's been one appearance by the president. Don't worry, America. He's fine. So to Jim's point, Charlie... Washington Post, Politico, they quote U.S. officials who are irritated at the Biden administration for soft-peddling this threat, uh, and they attribute it to the understandable desire on the part of the White House to avoid sparking a broader war with Iran, or more likely, its better-armed proxies like Hezbollah and the Levant. I'm sympathetic to this approach, but as Jim notes, and as our own eyes, the evidence of our own eyes tell us, the approach is not working. Iran and its proxies are not deterred. And this strikes me as very similar to the run-up to the Soleimani strike in 2019. And listeners may not remember the timeline around that strike because it wasn't as though this Iran provoked Donald Trump and he acted immediately with uh, you know a lot of resolve and struck Soleimani and stopped Iran right in its tracks. That's not how it worked. There was a long period of attacks on U.S. positions in Iraq from Shiite militias loyal to Iran. Iran had been seizing vessels, commercial vessels in the Gulf. It executed a spectacular multi-drone strike from Iranian territory on an oil production facility or refinery in Saudi Arabia. It was very bold. And one of those strikes in Iraq took, uh, killed an American contractor, wounded a lot of people. And that, that was when, after many other similar strikes, Donald Trump uh, finally responded. The response uh, killed a couple of militia, many militia members, but it didn't deter Iran, who immediately uh, went, uh, according to all the reports, um, energized this militia group, Khatib Hezbollah, to execute a siege of the Baghdad embassy and broke the walls of the embassy and forced our uh, embassy officials into safe zones for 24 hours, set the place on fire. It was a big attack. And it was then that we got the call to execute Soleimani on Iraqi soil. And that did scramble Iran's strategic thinking and did stop the, you know, the climb up the escalatory ladder. And Joe Biden doesn't really have an option like that available to him, not one that wouldn't provoke Iran from responding. So to be fair, the White House is in a difficult position. It's nevertheless one that is putting American soldiers at risk. But is there a simple way out of it? Or is there pain involved in no matter what the course of action the Biden administration takes? 
this is more your area than mine, Noah, but didn't the president give Iran $6 billion? At least. Yeah. Because you're sparking my memory that there was another effort. That was the Korean unfreezing of the Korean assets, Korean fuel assets. And there was another attempt to unfreeze some assets recently that I'm blocking on. Well, I just asked because it seems quite difficult to my lay ear to make the case that the White House is in a difficult position and there's no obvious prophylactic that can be used here when it just gave the people we're talking about a huge amount of money. I think you have to pick one, don't you? Because bribery isn't working. Well, bribery isn't working and perhaps made it worse. I think that this is redolent of a phrase I've already used, a conflict of visions. I think this does come down to different ways in which different people see the world. Some people really do believe that you should stay away from retaliation or intervention or response because you will make people more angry. We see this with domestic debates over crime. And others think that you have to have predictable and coherent responses that raise the cost and change the incentives. And we see this play out in our politics at all levels. We see it play out in foreign policy as well. Now, Donald Trump (laughs) had a, a third approach, which was to present himself, perhaps not strategically, but literally as a madman who was unpredictable. And I am more convinced that that helped than most. But when push came to shove, the Soleimani strike was the laying down of uh, the gauntlet. And I see far more don't poke the wasp's nest thinking from Joe Biden than I did from Trump's White House and from other Republican White Houses. And as you say, I just don't think that that is working. And I, broadly speaking, don't think that that works outside of very particular circumstances. And I think that is one reason why the world currently looks as it does. It wouldn't be an editor's without an exit question. So you're going to get one. We've established now that deterrence is has broken down, that it has not been restored, doesn't look like it will be restored anytime soon. Iran continues to test and its sponsors, or rather the groups it sponsors, continue to test their freedom of action and their parameters. And Joe Biden is letting that happen. So it's going to take a mass casualty event involving the deaths of American soldiers, preventable deaths of American soldiers, before Joe Biden acts in a way that could realistically or even theoretically restore deterrence, Charlie. Yes, I think it will. I mean, that answer alone is a profound indictment of this presidency, a a potentially impeachable indictment of this presidency, given the abdication of his responsibilities. Jim. I'm thinking yes, and I'm also just contemplating that uh, when things really went south in Kabul and it collapsed and, and it was very clear the Taliban was advancing, if I remember correctly, Biden did not address the public for four days. Um, and uh, he made one short statement before the cameras uh, after the after October 7th. I want to say like it, it happened on a Saturday morning. And so like a Sunday afternoon, Biden came out and he was flanked by Harris and it was either Blinken, I believe, and it was a you know a perfectly appropriate statement, but it was it was like you know he didn't take any questions. It was you know 
eight minutes of this is bad. Don't do this Hamas. We stand with Israel. And then another like day and a half before he uh, appeared. If God forbid there is a major foreign policy crisis uh, in, you know, on Biden's watch involving Iran, we will not hear, see the president uh, for quite some time during that crisis. We'll be told that he's busy. I have my doubts about whether this is genuinely busy or whether this is an 81-year-old man who simply can't appear uh, and who isn't up to the job anymore. But um, Biden has all, you know, Biden who was shaped by Vietnam and I think is a dove at heart, but who also is insecure and doesn't want to be seen as weak, kind of that worst of both worlds. Um, I, I fear that, yeah, it, it would. he will always look for the non-conflict path hoping that Iran can somehow be bribed or cajoled into better behavior. I think their behavior going back decades makes clear that this is not a realistic option. And uh, by the time Biden realizes that, it'll be too late. Yeah, uh, I wish I didn't agree. I think I do agree. Uh, we're going to see some more kinetic responses from the administration to these provocations. And I don't suspect that they will be robust enough to restore deterrence, but I, I don't think we're going to see nothing until that time occurs. But to Jim's point, Biden didn't want to be a wartime president, and it is due in no part to that small part, rather, to that aversion that he is now a wartime president. Uh, Iran can be deterred. We've seen it happen before. We know what it takes, but time is running out to avert a disaster because Iran is testing its limits in ways that are very provocative and very dangerous. But while the Middle East may be inscrutable, the mysteries of life are rendered less incomprehensible for listeners of our next sponsor, the Break Fast Podcast. Some topics seem to be inaccessible to the average person. Economics, quantum mechanics, even one of the world's most familiar religions, Catholicism, can be confusing at times, even for Catholics. That's why we're excited to announce that the Breakfast Podcast has returned with its second season. Faithful listeners of the editors may remember that the Breakfast Podcast was created after a long dinner when the show's host, Father Brian Grabe, told producers about how the church imbues our everyday lives in ways most people don't even realize. The word breakfast, for example, comes from Catholics breaking the fast after morning mass. The show's creators saw the need for a podcast that is engaging and accessible to everyone. For those of any faith, or none at all. The first season explores how various foods and drinks like champagne and sushi have their roots in the Catholic Church, believe it or not, and looked at what they can teach us about faith today. Season two focuses on famous landmarks, like how Central Park reminds us to enjoy the leisure of Sundays, and what the Statue of Liberty teaches us about the true meaning of freedom. Each episode is around 20 minutes long and full of joy and insight. You can download the Breakfast podcast on Apple, Spotify, the Odyssey app, or anywhere podcasts are found. Breakfast looks to entertain, enlighten, and inspire. Go ahead and check it out. So, guys, we can now clock it. Three months is roughly how long it takes before the elite press in the Excella Corridor take polls showing Donald Trump leading Joe Biden seriously. And we know that's how long it takes because we have been treated to a display of really earnest pleading with voters from a lot of elite media institutions saying that the Trump dictatorship is coming and it's time to prepare yourselves. That's how the editors at the Washington Post headlined Robert Kagan's piece on inevitable, the grim inevitability of Donald Trump's ascension to the White House and his uh, destruction of the civic compact 
and the boundaries around the presidency that prevent it from becoming an autocratic vehicle for one man's ambitions. But he wasn't alone. The Atlantic published a symposium of essays on all the multifarious threats that Donald Trump represents. Uh, the New York Times joined him and warned the following that I want to get your take on. Quote, Mr. Trump and his advisors' more extreme policy plans and ideas for a second term would have a greater prospect of becoming reality. But would they? Charlie, would they? Depends what you're asking. I wrote about this McKay Coppins piece yesterday. The idea that there is something intrinsically wrong with a president being able, within the executive branch and consistent with the law and the Constitution, to execute his will is absurd. Well, you got the the piece was about how he's surrounded by all this sycophants, and he's going to want to he's going to want to put his people in those positions, and that's really dangerous. Right. But I'm distinguishing here between your question and the question that was answered in many of these pieces. Your question was whether or not Trump would actually be able to do it, which I'll come to. But I just want to preface that by saying that the The idea that we are all supposed to gasp at the possibility that a president would wish those who work in the department to which he's been elected to follow through on his policies baffles me. Of course they will. If there were people in the White House, not just Trump's White House, but Biden's or Clinton's or Obama's or any White House, who were actively standing in the way of the policies of the one person who was elected to lead that branch, then they should be fired. They shouldn't be there. I'm not talking here about counsel or debate or team of rivals. And I'm not talking here about those who resign because they have been asked to do things that are illegal, that Congress has made verboten, that the Constitution makes verboten. I'm talking about the principle, which is that the elected official, and that's in the executive branch, the president, is in charge, and that no one else is. If there are people in the executive branch who are resisting the president, then we have a democratic problem, because those people have created a fourth branch of government that is not accountable to the voters. There are lots of checks and balances, and there should be. I am their biggest fan. I do podcasts about them. I write pie-ends to them magazine pieces, but they exist outside of the executive branch, not within it. That said, the executive branch still has to be run well. Those who are tasked with pushing the president's policies have to be capable of doing that. And because Washington, D.C. is, to coin a phrase, something of a swamp, you really do, in the year 2023, need people who understand how to navigate the existing bureaucracy and get things done. And no, I'm not convinced that Donald Trump will be able to do that or those that he appoints will be able to do that because I don't believe that Donald Trump himself wants to do that. He's lazy. This is not somebody who is going to come in and do the hard work, take the hits, 
stand in front of the cameras and explain that he is the president, not some undersecretary, that many conservatives want. There are people in our politics, they are rare, but there are people in our politics who I think could fulfill that role. I think Ron DeSantis is one of those people because I've seen him do it in Florida. But Donald Trump is not. Donald Trump is a showman. Donald Trump likes rallies. He likes ceremonies. He likes being on television. He likes the band playing Hail to the Chief. He likes being called Mr. President. That is what motivates him. He is lazy. Don't take my word for it. Just look at his four years in office. He did absolutely none of it. He folded at every juncture. Do we think he is more energetic, more dialed in now? Do we think that the B or C or D team that he will bring with him is more or less likely to be able to burrow deep into the bureaucracy and exercise its will? I think the answer is obviously less. But there is nothing wrong with him trying, providing, and this is key, providing that those efforts are in line with the Constitution and the law, which, of course, the efforts he made at the end of his presidency, for which he should have been impeached, were not. Jim, I say from experience that uh, writers and reporters have long ago confronted their impotence when it comes to warning voters against Donald Trump. So what is the point of this exercise? It feels rather rote. Is this just throat um, clearing? Uh, Noah, when you say writers have confronted their impotence, <laughs> please, please be quick to emphasize <laughs> in changing voters' minds. Not right, in, sure. Yeah. Not the yeah, not the kind that can yeah. be um, uh, remedied. By with the way, uh, yeah, you know, um, without going into conversations I've had um, with institutions beyond National Review, we have a presidential election where we are in December 2023 and it's been fairly clear since like summer at least if not back in 2021 who the matchup was going to be that it was going to be Trump versus Biden now could things happen in the primaries I guess yeah but you know it looks like Trump's going to be the nominee so it's going to be the exact same argument we've been having since really 2019 same two guys same general philosophies and how do you make that race interesting how do you make that race something new and different and worth paying attention to when it's the same old arguments we've been having? And really, you could argue um, we've been having the same arguments about Trump since he came down the escalator in 2015. We're, we're approaching eight years of this. Um, and it's hard to, to keep people's interest. It's hard to keep people engaged and excited. So I think some of this is a desperation on people who've been writing anti-Trump stuff for the better part of seven years now to find new ways to make it scary and and to get you to tune in is trump an aspiring dictator i i don't what trump you know see has an idea pop in his head and believes we should do it um i have a column in the works that trump wants to you know if you, most conservatives look at the process of certifying teachers and think it's well, it's run by states and they're like you know in too many states it's far too bureaucratic it's far too slow we have a whole bunch of people in our society who would make really good teachers but they can't get through the certification process which is at least in some states, controlled by the teachers' unions. Trump has a totally different philosophy. Trump wants to create a spectacular new federal certification process that's going to make sure that these people are patriots. We're only going to have patriotic teachers. Um, now, even the Heritage Foundation is like, you know, they, they, which loves Trump. They, they've been bending over backwards to be friendly to Trump. Even they were like, whoop, whoa, time out. We don't want to create another layer of federal bureaucracy. Anything you create can subsequently some future Democratic president. Like the moment you say, 
well, we're going to certify these teachers and we're going to weed out anyone who's ever appeared on libs of TikTok and we're going to weed out the woke crazy ones. Like in theory, that's great. But the problem is, is that some future Kamala Harris administration or some future Gavin Newsom, whatever, insert Democrat here, they can then say, no, we're only going to have woke teachers. We're only going to have pro-trans ideology teachers. You know, anything you create, some other president can, can you know, use as a tool for their ideological priorities as well. Um, but where I was going with this is that Trump has an idea pop in his head and he doesn't really think about, hmm, can I do this under the Constitution? Do I have the authority? This is a brilliant idea. We should make it happen. That's his philosophy towards these. And he's not alone in this. Charlie has written at great length and great eloquence at how Joe Biden constantly is doing things that his own lawyers are saying you don't have the presidential authority to do. And like, yeah, we'll go ahead. And if the Supreme Court strikes it down, the Supreme Court strikes it down. They get the blame for the student loan stuff. We at least get the credit. By the way, it didn't work out that way. Now, did it? But anyway, the point being is that Trump doesn't spend a lot. You know, is he, He's a dictator in the sense that he doesn't particularly care about what the Constitution says, whether he has the authority to enact a particular given idea or not. He's not alone in that flaw. The story of the first Trump president is, is presidency, as frustrating as it was, and as good as it was in certain ways, is that the guardrails largely held. Um, Trump could, you know, when Trump couldn't get the votes in Congress, he couldn't do it. Occasionally tried to move funding around for border wall stuff and stuff like that, had to work out a deal. When Trump tried to go beyond his constitutional powers, the court said, no, you can't do this. So there's a certain element here. I guess these, you know, folks believe that starting in 2025, these guardrails are going to crumble. These guardrails are just going to, like the state, these courts are just going to tell Trump you can't do that and he's going to ignore them and everything's going to be fine. Uh, that Trump is just going to steamroll Congress when Congress says, no, you can't do this. I, I don't think it's impossible that this, I think Trump, you know, at the wheel will be banging his car against the guardrails as hard as possible. But I don't think we become a dictatorship by the year 2026 or something like that. And I'm, I'm, I don't think these people are helping their cause by saying, in order to preserve democracy, you can only vote for one candidate. Yeah, I think these writers and editors are earnest. I don't think commercial uh, pressures is as cynical as that may be is really what's motivating them. I think they really genuinely believe it. I just think it's very blinkered and it's impossible to square with the reporting around the people in Trump's orbit who now, for example, want to throw the Federalist Society under the bus. As one person said to the New York Times, who operates a pro-Trump think tank now, is in the administration, the Federalist Society, quote, doesn't know what time it is, which is the shorthand for saying that they're not sufficiently committed to tearing down the, the pillars that buttress the American system and just really going for broke. But they don't want victories. The whole story that Federalist Society attack in the Times was that they want to do things that are so aggressive, so egregious, so so outside the bounds of constitutional norms that they'll lose in court. And they want to lose in court so they can have the stab in the back narrative. That's, the system is unequal to the task before us, so we need to tear it all down and start over. That's really reckless and cynical. But you need to lose in order to have that narrative. And in order to lose, you need to have an intact judiciary. You need to have an intransigent, intransigent Congress. You need to have a permanent bureaucracy where the members of it are afraid of being prosecuted for doing things illegal so they don't do illegal things. You need to have the intact constitutional system in order to have the narrative that the system is unequal to the mission, the glorious mission in which the Trump restoration is engaged. So I just find these two things tough to square. Um, so a uh, brief plug for NR Plus for listeners who stuck around this long, you need 
to invest in NR Plus. So you get this kind of content and all the stuff that we write for the website and the magazine. It's all really valuable. It's your way around our metered paywall. And we know what you're doing. You're, you're setting up incognito windows. You're stealing somebody else's password to try to get around. It's just, it's not worth the hassle. This is not a lot of money and you know it's worth it because you're listening to us, you read us anyway. So go ahead, invest in NR Plus. You won't regret it. Uh, let's move on to a couple of lighter things before we take off today. Jim, you are excited for the upcoming holiday festivities. Yeah, we don't entertain a ton, but uh, the Christmas Hanukkah party in the Garrity household is always a big deal. A bunch of folks will be over there. Charlie, Noah, if you lived in the greater D.C. area, you'd be invited. Listeners, uh, well, probably some of you listeners probably are invited and others aren't. We, you, if that's the case and you haven't been invited, it's because we don't know each other. Or conceivably, I don't like you, but that's probably not the case. But anyway, <laughs> so we're at the point, you can see the, a little bit of the house behind me. We, we've got to clean up the place like crazy. We've already put up the tree, haven't put the decorations on. Um, so it's, it's one of our busiest you know, households. And this is when probably some major household appliance is going to break in the next couple of days. You just got to know it. <clears throat> My wife will be cooking up a storm. The kids are in that preschool. Whole bunch of tests before the I'm sorry, holiday break. We live in Fairfax County. Some of us would call it a Christmas break. And we whisper it behind people's ears. Um, so I'm excited. But as soon as this podcast ends, I have to go, you know, like I have to get work done and then try to get the house clean, try to get the decorations done. And we'll be running around like chickens with our head cut off on Saturday afternoon. But somehow it's always worth it just to get to see people. Charlie, are you preparing for the holiday season? Well, I would like to announce the return of the elf on the shelf who ah. came back on the 29th i don't know how my five-year-old remembered this but he said last year the elf on the shelf arrived on the 29th will he be here this 29th and we thought well he will now the elf is very very popular i think my kids believe in this implicitly and as a result we've had to up our game each night in working out what mischief he's caused in the house but i quite enjoy doing it i must say it allows me to be creative for a change uh we didn't want to do that elf on the shelf thing we said no elf on the shelf we're not getting the elf and my kids we had this just stuffed gnome and the stuffed gnome took on a personality and a life and had a and just became an elf without us desiring it and actually actively opposing it but now we've been drafted into the process of making the stupid gnome do things Every night, drink a glass of wine, find himself in the refrigerator, steal our snacks. And we didn't want to do this, but the children made it happen. So you can't get away from the elf situation. Get out some baking uh, powder, put it under his nose, make it look like he's been snorting rind. That's a good one. Now rinds. I get to teach my children about yeah, cocaine See, right, and yeah, uh, you, illegal amphetamines. Use this opportunity <laughs> to make this. This is the worst behaved gnome ever. This is the Keith Richards of gnomes. <laughs> Where did this kids come from? Children. Kids. Kids, Where did you get the Bolivian marching oh, powder? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's well. I'll I'll put that away for uh, maybe that'll be tonight. But uh, while I think about that, let's do some editors' picks. Charlie, what are your picks? Go to Jim first, please, because I didn't do this, and I just realized this. <clears throat> Take your time, Charlie. Jim, Jim Garrity to channel Rich. <laughs> um, right as we started taping this, our uh, dear colleague and very wise editor of National Review, Ramesh, wrote a corner post entitled Unwelcoming Babies. And he talks about 
a, a controversy I've seen just like burst into flame on social media. I think of Guy Benson as a friend. We haven't talked in a while, but I'm always on good terms with him. And he and his partner are becoming fathers. Uh, they have a surrogate who has uh, given birth and that there's now a new beautiful baby in their lives. And I'm really happy for Guy. Congratulations. My message to most new parents out there is that everybody is telling you horror stories. Everybody will tell you about the sleepless nights and how uh, everything will go wrong, how your life is terrible. You're going to have spit up on your <laughs> shirt for the rest of your life. Nobody ever tells you, like, this is the greatest thing that's going to happen to you and that nothing you do with your life is going to be more important than what you do with that child. And so that's my message to Guy. That's my message to any new parents out there at this time of year. But like a lot of people, a lot of conservatives have very strong opinions about surrogate parenthood. And uh, they, they took it out on Guy and his partner. And they took it out on them. And I, I, Ramesh nails the tone that I've been looking for. I've been thinking about whether I wanted to write about this, how to write about this with the appropriate tone and sensitivity. Uh, some of our colleagues like Michael Brennan Doherty have laid out objections to it. And I think they are principled views. I don't think they're necessarily bad people. But Ramesh just makes the point of like, if when someone is celebrating one of the greatest things that's ever going to happen to them, parenthood, and you pick that moment to say, you are morally wrong. You are a part of the problem. You are destroying society and you are a monster. They're not going to forget it. And oh, by the way, you're not persuading anybody. You're not winning any friends. You're not changing any minds. You just come across as a word I shouldn't use on this podcast. Let's just say jerk, but you know I don't want to mean jerk. So um, thank you, Ramesh, for, for articulating it and for taking the thoughts that were kind of rattling around in the back of my minds and saying it better than I ever could. And, and kind of to say, you know, when, it, when a couple has a new child, the right thing to say is congratulations. This is the best thing that's ever going to happen to you. And hey, you're probably going to have some sleepless nights. What can I do to help? That's the pro-child approach right there. Not berating them, not calling them names, not lashing into them. So thanks for doing that, Ramesh. Very good pick. I agree wholeheartedly. Charlie, do you have one? So I'm going to pick a podcast. I'm going to pick a new podcast, a new National Review podcast called The Detransitioners, which is hosted by Caroline Downing. Now, I haven't listened to this yet because it's not out yet. It's about to be out. I think it is launched today. And it is a podcast version of the many pieces that Caroline wrote, which I did read and found difficult to read, I must say. Found harrowing to read, in which she goes through the many cases of people who decided or were encouraged to engage in surgery to, quote-unquote, change their sex. And now regret this and are trying to go the other way, which is not easy. And I think this is a good counterpoint to an absolutely absurd piece by Linda Polgreen that was published over the weekend, I believe in the New York Times, in which Polgreen makes the case that, ah, people make mistakes. Part of life is making mistakes. So why are people so het up about 13-year-olds cutting off their genitals? Because it's not really the sort of mistake people are talking about when they say, well, teenagers make mistakes. Yeah, you know, teenagers make mistakes is people getting drunk and throwing up. It's choosing a class that they subsequently dislike. It's breaking up with a girlfriend they then want to get back with. It's not cutting off their breasts. So this podcast, I think, is a useful corrective to that argument, which is frivolous. 
Important work by Caroline Downey. I look forward to listening to the Detransitioner series, a limited edition National Review podcast. You should check it out. <clears throat> Two quick pieces I wanted to highlight. One by Jeff Blehar, which is very important. To be a Jew in America after 10-7 um, talks about how municipalities in this country in particular are abdicating their duty to pluralism, much less their own consciousness, by compelling Jews in America to celebrate behind closed doors. Keep it to yourself because things are just too dangerous out there and we don't want to be a part of it. Uh, and the second piece in the magazine by Zach Kessel, who's doing amazing work for National Review, Anti-Zionism's Soviet Roots, uh, the degree to which the Soviet Union developed quite a lot of the anti-Semitic arguments that you're hearing today, including those uh, uh, postulated by the head of the Palestinian Authority, who has a degree in Holocaust denial from the notorious Moscow University, Patrice Lumumba University. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Zach's piece is incredibly important. But that is going to do it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. And thank you to our advertisers, Babel, Made In, and the Breakfast Podcast. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.